Thank you so much, Joshua. Thanks for your prayer. Um, thanks, Musos. Um, that was that was that was really amazing. We we prayed this morning a little bit outside just for the Holy Spirit to come. And I don't know about you, but just those those songs. It helps to put you in your rightful place. In fact, it helps to put God in His rightful place. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need our our worship. But man, it's good for us. Um, so I'm going to be preaching out of Jan- Daniel 8, and Daniel 8's kind of sort of precursed by Jeremiah the prophet, so I'm going to, I think it was appropriate, it would be appropriate to start with Jeremiah quickly. So here's the word, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. So, so we sang a little bit earlier about, about the Lion of Judah that fights our battles. And thank you for whoever it was who decided to put the chairs this way. I think it's just so appropriate that we have the sun rising behind us. We have a new hope. We have the sunrise. It's not guaranteed. It's come up. God's given us another blessing, another chance. And so we speak about this Lion of Judah, this hope that we've got. And all we need to do is put God in His rightful place like we did. Didn't you feel it when we sang this morning? Didn't you feel it? You put Him in the rightful place. You just have to say. You don't have to feel anything. You just have to say the words. Put Him in His rightful place and things come into alignment and that promise of God is there. Put him in the right place. Get rid of those idols. And the promise is done. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us and is in us. This is amazing. And the only thing we have to do is just turn. Take that idol out of the place of God. Put God in his rightful place. And that power moves. And you will be set free. Oh, you are Wonderful, thank you. So that's my preach, basically. So I'm done. Um, no, uh, as you know, we're in Daniel. So, um, so I'd just like to start off by saying, where's Matt? Actually, Glenn's not here, so I can't shout at him. But really, guys, seriously, you wouldn't give me Daniel 8. I get this, this random verse about a ram, a goat, and a couple of horns. There are very, very few texts available on this to guide me. There are very few people who take the time to go and dig into this particular piece of scripture and expound on it. It's confusing. Every time I try, I find myself stuck in religion, apologetics, or a history lesson. And that doesn't bring life, I can guarantee you. So on Fridays, a couple of close friends, of, uh, cl- close friends get together and, and we uh, spend a little bit of time in the Word. And this week we were discussing Moses a little bit and Moses' first attempt to convince uh, Pharaoh. And uh, so he goes in there and it doesn't work out well and he comes back and he has a go at God. Um, and just like Moses, I feel the same thing. So I've been saying to him, like, it's not easy. Uh, things are getting worse, not better. I'm getting more and more pressure to 
find something in this that you're trying to say. There must be an easier way. And the truth is, there is an easier way. I work in marketing, so one of the coolest things that's happened recently is this thing called ChatGPT. Has anyone used it? Yeah, it's great. It is fantastic. In marketing, you want to use it. It basically connects you to everything that has ever been written on the internet by anyone. You can ask it to go and look up any obscure reference and tell me, write it for me in this style. So I could literally go to it and I could say, ChatGPT, would you be so kind as to look up any reference on the internet for Daniel 8? And then present it for me in the way of John Mark Comer. And it would then do that. And I could stand up here and I could actually read that to you. But something in me goes, no, that's not it. And I find myself going, but God, it's, it's easier. It's so much easier. I can just quickly get this outline, and then I can still let the Holy Spirit speak to me, and I can still deliver your word, but it'll just be faster. And on the flip side of that, it is so cool. I get to spend more time with my family, which you've given me. So, you know, that's my responsibility. On the other hand, I have the option of sitting cold and lonely with a text I don't understand, surrounded by all the shipwrecks of my previous ideas and attempts, and try and squeeze something out of an obscure prophecy about a ram, a goat, and some horns. So yesterday I finally gave up. I've been sitting on this thing for a couple of months. And yesterday I, I actually found myself getting up early and I just I gave up. And I said, I finally, <laughs> you'd think I would cotton on to this a lot earlier, but now I finally asked God, what is, this, what is it that he wanted to say out of this text? And in that pressure, I finally broke. My ego broke. And God was able to say, okay, now you're ready. Now I can show you what it is. And he reveals something of his nature, just like what we see with Moses God says to Moses, he doesn't answer the accusations that Moses levels at him. He says, no, now I can reveal myself by a new name. So my hope this morning is that I will be able to share a little bit of what God has opened to me in this. So before we start on Daniel, we need to just put this into perspective. Where are we? So we need to take a bit of a 30,000 foot approach to this. We have Israel. Israel are God's chosen people. They're born of a promise of God to Abraham. And it goes something like this. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between myself and you and your descendants after you. I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. And that I will never leave nor forsake you. These are some of the promises that God made to the people of Israel. He then led them into the promised land. They had taken possession of the land. It was a good land. Yet we see Israel turning their back on this covenant with God. Somehow, they have become less than the humans God intended for them to be. They're not flourishing the way that God intended them to flourish. They complained that it was just too hard. 
that there were too many rules to obey. They thought, if I can just choose, if I can take some of the things that I desire for myself, God will understand that. After all, I mean, God promised not to leave or forsake us. So, surely, I can do what God wants, but I can also do what my heart desires. And if there's any misalignment, it's fine. I can sacrifice a little bit. I can ask God to forgive me, and of course he will, because I'm the chosen one. Yet we see God send them prophets to bring their attention to the fact that they were on the wrong course and they needed to correct their course. He sends them prophets. And they don't like that. They choose to ignore that and carry on in their own way. You see, when you grab the power that's not yours, when you try and take the power that is God's and you try and discern what is good and evil and right and wrong for yourself, you find yourself needing to defend this position. It's not your power. You've become insecure, but you, you become ashamed. And suddenly it becomes a good idea to maybe, let's just kill these prophets. You know, they, they, they are threatening my power. Let's, let's sentence a man to death by hanging him on a cross, an innocent man, to protect the power that I have. What you start seeing in Israel at that time is scary. Jeremiah speaks into this. God says through Jeremiah the prophet, I will pronounce my judgments against them for all their wickedness, because they have forsaken me to burn incense to other gods and to worship the works of their own hands. And again, yet my people have exchanged their glory for useless idols. And again, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Jeremiah 2 verse 19. For long ago... 2 verse 20, sorry. For long ago, I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree, you have bowed down like a whore. Yet I planted you a choice vine, holy, of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. How can you say I'm not unclean? I've not gone after the balls. Look at your way in the valley. You know what you have done. A restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wild wilderness, in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need to weary themselves. In a month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst, but you said it is hopeless. For I have loved foreigners, and after them I will go. And many, many other verses. One of which is Israel, God asks, Is Israel a slave? Was he born into slavery? Why then has he become prey? Notice the reversal here. 
Although burned to rule and reign, Israel has become prey. Something terrible has happened to the Israelites. They've become less than the flourishing human that God had in mind. They've become like animals. Then God allows the unthinkable thing to happen. He allows Babylon to conquer Israel. And the best and the brightest of Israel are led into Babylon. And that's where the story of Daniel comes in. Daniel is a story of hope. Kings and kingdoms will come and go. Kings will be raised and they'll exalt themselves. And they'll exalt themselves above God and they will become like animals, driven by their desires and instincts. And then they will either humble themselves before God and be restored, or they'll exalt themselves and they'll be destroyed. And the cycle starts all over again. But here's the hope. One day, the indignation will end, and God will restore Israel. The prophecies and the promises will be fulfilled, and God will redeem his creation. He will send the Son of Man to defeat the beasts that we heard about last week and establish an everlasting kingdom where we get to rule and reign with God. God will restore his creation. There is hope for humanity. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I, that I want. And that brings us to Daniel chapter 8. And you're going to have to bear with me because I've now lost my place here. Daniel 8. <clears throat> All right. I'm afraid you're going to get a bit tired of my voice this morning. It's a bit of reading. So, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elan. And I saw in the vision, and I was, in the, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him. And there was none who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. 
and a host will be given over to it together with regular burnt offering because of transgressions. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering? The transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen this vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near to where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between its eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper, under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but not by human hand. The vision of the evenings and mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Okay, I don't know about you, but I don't think Daniel's alone in his confusion. <clears throat> that was weird. So what, stand out, what stands out to me in the story is a couple of questions. So I don't know if anyone picked up on it, but this is sort of double-clicking, focusing in on two of the beasts that we heard about last week. So why the double-click? What is with this ram and the goat? And what significance does this have for us today? So let's let's start off with that. Why the double click on this? So as I said, you would have picked up that this is a bit of a zoom in on the bear and the leopard from last week. The bear that was sort of lopsided uh, and the leopard with the four wings. Um, so why does it, is it just like a repetition? Does he just want to focus in on it? Or is there something else that's going on here? So one of the clues that I think I found to this, one of the things that I believe uh, gives you a hint as to, as to this is, is the original structure of this book. This book was originally written in both Aramaic and in Hebrew. Um, chapters 2 through 7 are all in Hebrew. Chapters, sorry, are in, all in Aramaic. Aramaic was a language that was wide, more widely spoken, more people understood it. 
Um, and if you look at the contents of chapters 2 through 7, where we ended last week, these are more general things about kings, about kingdoms, and about the hope that God has for all mankind. Chapter 1 is about how did we get here. It's about Daniel coming into the situation and his friends. Chapter 7 through 12 seem to be how, what, what significance does this have for the people of God. So we're not talking specifically to the people of God. Um, so, what's with the ram, of the ram and the goat? So, it's temptation to really get into this, but I think just from a high level, did anyone notice that last week we had vicious, terrifying animals, and now we have domestic animals? Kind of, kind of strikes me that there's something significant here. Here we're presented with a surprising reversal again. Beasts which are supposed to be ruled and reigned by us, by God's people, are now trampling and oppressing us. So when I'm looking at this sort of thing, it helps to consider the three ways that God speaks to us. So how does this, how does this verse, how does this book talk to us about God's overarching plan to rescue His creation. Number two, how does this speak into God's relationship with His chosen people, His, his Israel and nowadays the church? And then how does this relate to my personal walk with God? So in terms of God's overarching plan, it's really helpful because we've got Gabriel himself to explain what, he's, what, he's, what we're looking at here. This prophecy speaks about God's intricate knowledge of the future, and it speaks of his righteousness. It gives hope to Daniel's generation, but also gives hope to the generations that come as we see some of these prophecies fulfilled. Gabriel tells us that this is a prediction of the Medo-Persian Empire and a power that will come later from Greece, and it's accurate. We can tell. We have the, the advantage of hindsight. We can look back and we can see, ah, this really matches what happened just after that? So the history, the history tells us that Alexander the Great would have led Greece. And he, he did it. He conquered the Medo-Persian Empire so fast that it corresponds with that image of this goat that goes across the land without touching the ground. And we also know that Alexander the Great, at the, at the height of his power in his 30s, suddenly died, corresponding to that horn being broken. Alexander's kingdom, we know, was divided by his four generals, which corresponds again to the text to say that it will be divided into four. And we also know that out of the southern portion, a leader arose who expanded his domain to the southeast and towards Israel, and he subdued Israel. Antiochus Epiphanes IV exalted himself to the height of God. He actually coined, he minted a coin, and on that was his likeness, and around the edges was written Antiochus Epiphanes, God manifest. He introduced a period of oppression of the Jewish people and beliefs, the likes of which had never been seen before. He murdered the chief of priests, and anyone found practicing Judaism, which may correspond with the throwing down of the host of heaven that we see there. 
He desecrated the temple and raised an altar of Zeus inside the temple. He had people sacrifice various things to a statue that he made of himself in the temple. Under his reign, people were murdered in the temple court. And anyone caught practicing any Jewish rites were tortured and killed, either in the temple or in the temple courts. He stopped the Jewish calendar and banned the sacrifices corresponding to the prediction that you see in this, in this text. This version is, is remarkably close to those events, this, ver- this, this prophecy. But there's a lot of arguments around this. Is this just a prophecy about that particular time? Is this a prophecy that speaks into World War II? Is this a prophecy that actually is about something that has never happened yet, that is still to come, the, the return of Christ? But what God is pressing on me through this is not whether this is accurate or not, or whether it's a specific time or not. What God has pressed on me through the Scripture is the subtlety and the severity of idolatry. The Israelites persisted in idolatry despite the many warnings that God had given them. God repeatedly encouraged them to turn. He sent prophet after prophet, but they persisted. Joshua asked me yesterday, is this God punishing us? Is this God punishing the Israelites? And it's a good question. I'd like to just speak to you about God's heart in this matter. And again, it comes out of Jeremiah. I don't have it here in front of me now. But God's, God's, God cries through Jeremiah. He says, if you would just admit, if you would just admit that you worship idols and you repent and you turn, I can still save you. I can still avert this disaster that's coming your way. That's where his heart's at. Some people might know it. I... I um, before what I do now, I worked in wounds. I um, had the privilege of trying to help people that get badly burnt or have wounds that don't heal. And I've treated many septic ulcers in my life, and these usually are on diabetic patients. And they're caused by a lack of circulation. And what happens when you have a lack of circulation is literally the flesh starts rotting. And I remember how frustrating it was when you're treating someone with diabetes and you've got this problem, you're putting a great dressing on it and you're trying to heal this thing, but they refuse to change. They refuse to change their diets. They refuse to change their lifestyle. Often continue smoking, continue eating processed carbohydrates and things like that, which are going to just exacerbate the problem. And the wound gets bigger and bigger and worse and worse. And despite the best efforts, the doctor has to at some point make the choice to amputate that limb and save the person. It makes me think of what Mark said in Mark nine forty-seven when he says, if your eye causes you to sin, rather pluck it out, that it's better for you 
to be blind than, and, and go to heaven than, than be thrown into the pit of hell. So I've always sort of battled with that one, but I think I see it in this context. So how does this work out for Israel? How does this verse, how does this, this chapter that I've got work out for Israel here? So in this scripture, God hands Israel over to the very things that they are worshipping, that they may run their course. As he promises in Genesis, you will surely die. And Paul writes to the, the wages of sin are death. Note that it's the wages of sin and not the wages for sin. This is the natural course. This is what sin does. If you allow it to persist, if you don't listen to God, if you're not humbling yourself in front of Him and you don't have Him in the right, rightful place, this is where it goes. He will allow it to run its course, and the course is death. It will eventually die, that part of you that is worshipping something else. But that part of you that God loves, He will redeem, and He will grow, and He'll make that into an image of, God, of Christ. So my question is, is this verse, is this thing that, that Daniel is seeing, is this just an isolated thing? Is this just a one-off? It's happened, it's done, we can learn a little bit about it, let's move on. My question to you then is, can you think of an event in the Bible, in the history of the Bible, where someone considers the power of God something to grasp, in this case from a tree perhaps, that led to death? In more recent history, can you think of a time where a single nation exalted themselves and oppressed another nation or another peoples and defended their point of view to the point where they felt it was justified to kill thousands of people in experiments and gas chambers? Can you think of an example from your own life where something designed to serve you is now reigning over you, demanding your very life from you. I would suggest to you that this is not something that is a one-off. This is a pattern. Tim Mackey, in his talk about the four beasts, puts forward the argument that these beasts, while they portray specific events in history, are more accurately interpreted as a type of human or a type of society that any time humans exalt their needs and desires above God, something terrible happens to them. They become less than human. When groups of these less than human people organize themselves into societies, it always eventually leads to the same image of oppression, the reversal of God's order, and death. The things that God ordained to serve us ends up ruling over us. God points out to me that this is the nature of broken man. This is the very thing that causes us to fail every single time. This pattern repeats itself over and over again in history. This pattern repeats itself over and over again in our lives. But into this hopelessly repeating pattern of man and kingdoms, idolatry and death, comes the Son of Man, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who offers us a new way of thinking, of being human as God sees it. Philippians 2 verse 6, let this mind 
be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Isn't that the nature? Isn't that what we're seeing here? Equality with God being grasped by us, by these kingdoms. But instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to God, obedient even to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above all names. We sang about that earlier. That the name of Jesus, at, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father, by his life and his death, Jesus is ushered in a new kingdom, a more excellent way of being human. He has set us free of this pattern of idolatry, self-exaltation and death. Amen. Sign me up. I'm in. I can do this. So is that it? Is that the whole thing? Is that what we get out of this verse? Not quite. Sorry, guys. Daniel 8, verse 27, the very last thing that he says, Then I rose and went about the king's business. God's not satisfied with head knowledge. He doesn't stop there, unfortunately, or fortunately for us. We are called to live this out personally. Are you stuck in a repeating pattern? Stop trying to fix the symptom. Stop praying to God to fix the symptom. It's not the problem. You're putting a patch. You're doing what I was doing. You're putting a dressing on a wound and you're not addressing the actual problem, the food that's going in. Ask God to show you what the root of that is, the idol that you've put in his place. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to us to break that, to break that cycle of idolatry. 1 John 5, 19 to 21, we know that anyone born of God does not keep on sinning. The one who is born of God protects him, and the evil one cannot touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is under the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And then he ends with this, little children, keep yourself from idols. I challenge you to think about your lives in the last seven days. Have there been times when you've been present, presented with a choice to exalt yourself and your desires above what God is wanting from you or to humble yourself and submit to his authority, as difficult and as painful as that may be? We make these choices every day. One of these paths, like my great idea of using ChatGPT to write a sermon outline for me, creates idol of self 
and builds and contributes to the world as it currently is. The other one of these paths breaks the chains that hold us in a repeating pattern of failure. It drives us into relationship with God and builds the kingdom and leads to living a life of abundance now. Now, just to be clear, is chat GPT evil? I think time will tell. I'm not sure. But that's not the point. If that's what you're getting out of this, then come speak to me. I think we'll have to start over again. The point is not that. The point is, what am I doing? What, am I, what is out of alignment here when I want to take a shortcut, when I want to make my life easier? What I'm doing is I'm putting something in the place of God. I'm putting my desires above God. You see, God, our God, sneaky here. Our God, where are you? There you are. God, our God, the creator of the universe, wants a personal relationship with you. He wants to redefine our ideas on what it means to lead and be part of a community. His kingdom does not work the way the world works. Ask him to step into his rightful place and he will work all things to restore that relationship. It is hard. It requires you to humble yourself. It requires you to die to yourself. Don't choose the shortcut. There's only one path that leads to life. I'd like to end with Luke 9:23. Then Jesus said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world? Isn't that what we're trying to do? Isn't that what the kings and the kingdoms are doing in this book? Gain the whole, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their very or their true self? God has a plan for you. He sees you. He sees who he's made you to be. We sang earlier that the Lion of Judah fights battles for us. Yes, he does. Yes, he will. But he chooses to do that through us, and he won't do it if you have an idol in his place. So I'd like to end in worship, and I'd like to give us all a chance to humble ourselves before God. Ask him, ask him to highlight for you the things that are idols in your life. These are subtle things. It's easy to look at mammon. It's easy to look at money. It's easy to look at other things. But what is the authority, the final authority on the decisions you make? That will tell you where, what, is, what is in the place of God. I'd like us to, to worship now, put God in his rightful place and ask him to show you what those are. And the power of God will break that thing for you. And you can live in freedom. He's given us freedom. He's come. It is done. It is finished. Accept it. Worship God. Amen.